Welcome to the Pursuing Jesus podcast. This is episode 2B. This is a conversation on the Good Samaritan parable. We're going to have a conversation about that parable and then also discuss what being a neighbor involves. And for those of you who need to look it up, this parable is in Luke 10, 25 through 37. And with me here today is Michal Muhlenberg. So say hi and introduce yourself. <laughs> hi there, um, I'm Michal. I'm uh, born in the Middle East, but I grew up in Holland and I came to the US about 12 years ago. I work as a translation manager, um, but I pretty much spend all my time when that I'm not working on helping Muslims and Christians connect, uh, become friends and working on peace building efforts together. Awesome, I'm so glad to have you here. Yeah. So real quick, I just thought I'd give a recap of this parable for those who maybe haven't read it in a while and are just tuning in for the first time. Um, but this happens a day where Jesus is out teaching and there's a lawyer that approaches him and asks him a question, um, basically as a test. And what do you remember what the question is? Oh, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life? Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. What yeah. must they? And and then Jesus kind of just asks him a question. Well, you know the law and the prophets. What do they say? And he's right. like, Well, you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, mm-hmm. and you love your neighbor as yourself, which is the right answer. Right. And uh, we could dive into like what that means to love God fully, but um, yeah. what we want to talk more about today is kind of his second response is when Jesus says, Yeah, go do that, and then he kind of wants to limit. His response. I think in the text it says um, he wanted wanting to justify himself and then asking. Correct. Yeah. 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 He. So his answer is love God and love his neighbor. But then, like you said, wanting to justify himself, he said, "Well, who's my neighbor?" Right. He wanted to find a way to either be okay with the people he currently loved and or limit his love to certain groups. Yeah. And as we know, Jesus requires love without limits. Mm. Um, when I was reading this parable, I thought a cool way to kind of condense its meaning is you want to love others in such a way that when you do it, you're automatically loving God. Hmm. And then when you you want to love God in a way that when you're loving God, you're loving others. Right. I uh, like that. So what do you, you know? What do you see in this parable when you look at it? Yeah, so many things. Um, I think like growing up as a kid, you know, my dad was a pastor. So I grew up hearing the story all the time. And you didn't really like connect like who Samaritans were because we don't really grow up with, you know, there are still, I think about 800 of them. Um, But, you know, it's not really where in Holland there's no Samaritans. (laughs) So, and most of the times you're just hearing, like you're drawing these little pictures of like the Good Samaritan, and you're just basically seeing the story as like, oh, someone that takes care of people that can't take care of themselves. Um, But the more I've thought about it um, and try to put the situation into today, I'm realizing that if you were to kind of translate the story, I would be that person asking this question uh, because it's someone that knew, knew his Bible, um, really well, you know, the Old Testament that was revealed up to that point. And, uh, you know, I have an MDiv, so I'm like, okay, so I'm not an expert for sure, um, but definitely I have that question too. Like, how do I go to heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? And so for the answer to come that way and then um, asking the additional question, um, I also started thinking, okay, how would Jesus tell that story if he were alive today? 
And I was kind of thinking like, oh, we live in California. So it would be a road from maybe LA to <laughs> San Diego. Um, and, you know, someone would be laying on the side of the road. And one of the things I realized is that this person doesn't have any clothes on and is half conscious, like or half dead, right? Is what the text says. And so in other ways, you can't really identify from like the type of clothes that the person's wearing or the type of accent that this person has you know, what kind of background this person has, you know, whether they're high income or low income or from another country or whatever. So um, it's really becomes this, this story um, of the hero. When hmm. I was younger, and I, and I feel like also not just me, but probably the majority of people that don't really know culturally who a Samaritan was, would just think, oh, good Samaritan, that's just like a, a nice term we have for someone that's like likes helping people, right? And that's yes. as far as it goes. Yeah. But really, um, Jesus sets up this parable brilliant, brilliantly because the the heroes that are supposed to save the day don't. Right. You've got the priest and the Levite who just skirt around the problem and don't want anything to do with it, hmm. and instead, it's kind of the the hated outsider, the person that's feared, the person that. You might grow up telling your kids to stay away from, or <laughs> right. or or whatnot. That is is the one that displays sacrificial love. And so I think you're right. I think like who who would that be today for us? Hmm. I know in the parable I used some like older examples. Like this would be like you know um, a Native American helping like a, a you know a rancher you mm-hmm. know in like the eighteen like the eighteen hundreds or right. you know maybe in the fifties. This is like a a uh, black man helping a white woman mm. in like the American South, mm. um, and but there's probably a number of groups today right. that we, as a collective society, look at and we fear or yeah. we don't understand that could probably fit that role, right? When I was kind of studying like Samaritans. Um, I found that, you know, they were a different ethnicity. They were considered like a different ethnic group. Um, they had a different religion even. Um, like Samaritanism um, had a few things in common with Judaism, but it was considered a different religion because it also had different beliefs, different practices. Um, they didn't accept the same priesthood um, as the Jews did. And they had some like different writings as well. Um, and so they were really not seen as part of Judaism. They were seen as another faith. Um, and they were also, you know, as you were mentioning, it would be the type of group that you would avoid. Like there were literally roads that people would not go on and go through the trouble to go all around another um, direction to avoid these people. So when Jesus, like a couple chapters earlier, is right. actually going straight through, everyone's like, what are you doing? Like no Jew goes on those roads. Um, and it would also need to be, uh, when you look at Samaritans today and both in history and today, um, they actually wash their hands and feet. They do ablution before they pray. They take off their shoes and they put their foreheads on the ground um, when they pray and they can hold up their hands open. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, it looks very similar to Muslims today. Yeah. Um, and so I was kind of thinking, um, even if you wanted to qualify that more, it would have to be a Syrian Muslim refugee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. would not be someone that a lot of people even one in the country, right? Is kind of what's going on right now um, to be the hero of this story. And 
an equivalent for like religious leaders today, it may be like a Baptist pastor or an evangelical pastor or yep. something going down the road, like these people that we really look up to, um, you know, not being the hero of the story, but it's actually a Syrian Muslim refugee. And even just saying that, like, you know, that doesn't sit right. Um, mm -hmm. Thinking about like the community that we come from um, and maybe the comparison even, you know, makes us uncomfortable. And so I, when we put ourselves in the shoes of the expert asking the question, you know, if Jesus were to ask us like, well, who's the hero? You know, his response is not Samaritan, right? And our mm -hmm. response may not be, oh, the Syrian Muslim refugee, it'd be the one that shows mercy. Yeah. That guy that <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna reference by name. Right, yeah. exactly. Like rather, rather not mm -hmm. do that. So that like really kind of hits home. Yeah. I think what Jesus was trying to say and do in that parable. Yeah, and I think it it needs to remain uncomfortable hmm. for it to really have an impact on us. I think that was probably the, the point that Jesus was trying to make, right? Is right. He wanted to shock people in such a way that hopefully would expand their perspective about who they're supposed to love. Yeah. Um, because it, it is, it's really easy to think that you're loving if you love the people like you, that right. live where you live, that are in the same income, same yeah. religion, same skin color, right. or whatever, and think you're loving. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you say Syrian Muslim refugee, you're saying, at least for the West, you're saying someone from a different country, a dangerous mm -hmm. country even, mm -hmm. um, a person of a different skin color, mm -hmm. different cultural values and, and norms, um, different faith practices, mm -hmm. everything is different. Right. And in some ways, the media has unfairly portrayed some of these groups as um, dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's also a sense of like, almost like personal harm could come to me. Right. Fear. If I'm around yeah. these people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. In the church, you know, we follow Jesus, we, we assume that we're on the in crowd, that we've been forgiven, and that because of that, Jesus wouldn't have any words for us today. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're already doing what we're supposed to, but the the Pharisees thought the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. They were a group that were trying to bring back their equivalent of revival through really holy practices. Mm -hmm. And they would have probably been the last people that you would think that, that would be condemned, but then they were. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if Jesus was here today, and we're, we're trying to contextualize this parable today, you know, what, what do you think he would be telling us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the word humility comes to mind um, in that, I, I think for me, like growing up as a pastor's kid, um, I kind of had that air, like even in Sunday school, like I know it all. <laughs> I had like answers on the questions that were being asked and, you know, and then later I went into children's ministry and youth ministry and you'd always be the one teaching. Um, so I think especially if we're finding ourselves in that position, realizing that there's so much more for us to learn and so much that we don't know about outside of our own bubble, right? And so for me, coming as an immigrant to the United States, like to a new culture um, and, um, you know, engaging Muslims and engaging other um, immigrants, whether documented or not, um, really made me realize, and African-Americans, like I didn't grow up with um, mm -hmm. any of those, obviously, because they're American, mm -hmm. <laughs> in Holland. And I was like thinking like, whoa, I know so little mm -hmm. um, about the experiences of other people, um, of their faith, of their life experiences, of kind of the narrative of their communities. Um, and I need to 
just shut up, sit down, and listen. Um, and for a really long time, and, and um, building, like being very proactive in building relationships with people that um, I may not have, because I could have also easily, like I came into kind of a, a white evangelical Christian bubble in the United States, mm-hmm. I could have you know, stayed, stayed there. there. Yeah. Um, but then realizing all these things going on in the media, where it's like, well, I need to find out for myself. Um, and going outside of it, so basically going into Samaria, I guess, you know, for what was back then for the Jewish people, and take initiative. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. And I think um, you're hitting on this point that I've been thinking about lately. I feel like in our, our faith tradition, there's a lot of focus on orthodoxy. Hmm. So what are what do we believe? What hmm. are the right things to believe? But there's not a equal focus on orthopraxy, which is the right actions. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of a lot of talking, a lot of, sad to say, judging. Right. Um, and not a lot of doing. Mm-hmm. So it's this mis- this misbalance. Yeah. And uh, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see what well, he was teaching a lot, but he was also practicing what he was teaching mm-hmm. side by side. Yeah. And then his parables reflect that too. They're always action focused. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um it's, you know, growing up in Holland, we learn a lot about the Reformation and kind of, you know, what are the right and the wrong dogmas and creeds and beliefs. And, um, you know, even in semin- going to seminary here in the United States, I've been to three different seminaries. That's like where 90% of your time is focused on, like having the right beliefs. And also then the distinctions between different denominations, like we got the right interpretation <laughs> yeah. and they have the wrong one. You know, we spend so much time and energy on that. Um, and yeah, I think, well, in all of that, have we shown love to the people oh. that are outsiders um, and, and really given hands and feet to the teachings of Jesus practically? I agree with you. Yeah, that's huge. The danger is, right, is that, um, well, belief is important, right? Because of course. your action has to come out of what you believe. Yeah. So you have to have right beliefs to have right action. But if you're so concerned on what do we believe, what does this group stand for, then you make these really clear demarcations, these boundary lines. Right. You're in, those other people are out. Yeah. And then you may never cross the divide because you've set up that boundary so strongly. Right. Well, and it's a lived experience too. That's one of the things that I've learned a lot um, getting to know pretty wide variety of, of Muslims is that we have this kind of idea of a monolithic Islam. Um, like this is what they believe, you know, and a lot of Christian books have been written by other Christians about this other faith of like, these are the things they believe, this is what they practice. And then when I get to know Muslims, like, mm, <laughs> no, or not always, or there's <laughs> yeah. a huge variety. Um, and realizing that, you know, just as much with them, it's, you know, there's a, these beliefs on paper, but then there's a lot of um, disagreement among them of mm-hmm. what that means in practice. Um, and finding very devoted um, Muslims who um, really seek to love God and to be good to other people, and it really kind of messes with you um, in a lot of ways. So I think um, it's a we have to look at ourselves when we. Um, view it through like an orthopraxy and orthodoxy um, viewpoint and also extend that to um, people of other faiths that we're interacting with. Right. So maybe a practical example for that is instead of just 
like you said, reading a book about what do Muslims believe. Right. Actually, you know, go meet some people, make some friendships. Right. And and without any agenda other than just being friends. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like love your neighbor. Yeah. Like, proactively. <laughs> and that also requires like asking them how can I make you feel most loved? Mm. Uh, because we may think like, oh, we'll do X, Y, Z, and that's our version of love, if you will, or then I can like check the box. Okay, I've done that. I've been the Good Samaritan. <laughs> um, but what is it that you need? Like, what are, um, how can I be a blessing to you? Yeah. Yeah, and you you specifically, you have a ministry to, mm. kind of, to help investigate this, right? Do you want to talk about what that is? Yeah, so back in 2010, um, I got to know um, American Muslims for the first time and um, learned a lot in the process and, um, you know, overcame a lot of stereotypes that I personally had. And um, I became really good friends specifically with uh, one uh, Muslim, her name is Sundus, um, we're the same age. And um, uh, we started writing about our friendship. And uh, as soon as we started publishing some stories, she got questions from a lot of Muslims like, wait, is Michal for real? Like, she's like, really like a Christian. She sounds, you know, so amazing. I mean, not to like, true. yeah, I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if they know me in practical, practical terms. We've definitely had our moments, so Sundus knows kind of my ups and downs. But, um, and they were asking like, how can I make a Christian friend like Michal? And I had the same thing from my community, like a lot of Christians asking me like, wow, Sundus sounds really amazing. I'm really surprised by her. Like. Is she the only one? Are there more? Can I make a Muslim friend? And so that's when we decided to start this initiative called Two Faiths, One Friendship, in which we basically facilitate uh, bringing the Muslim and Christian community together uh, to get to know each other, to break bread together, um, to ask questions and to explain what our faith means to us from our own perspective rather than having pundits on TV or books doing it. Um, and uh, and then we also work very proactively in um, peace building initiatives to help see um, a better society where we're at. Um, and uh, it's been a really remarkable journey, I think, over the last two plus years that we've done it. We've seen about 1,200 Muslims and Christians um, get introduced to each other. Yeah, when we talk about loving our neighbors, obviously that can mean meeting physical needs. And that, in fact, that is a part of it, right, is just seeing the needs of those next to you and going, oh, can I meet that? Can I help in some way in doing that? But I almost feel like there needs to be some preliminary work first, mm -hmm. especially with these groups that might be unfairly vilified mm -hmm. or there's some fear there right. because of media or whatever reasons. Um, and I think storytelling is a big part of that. Yep. And it sounds kind of like what you're doing. You're, you have a friendship that's genuine and mm -hmm. you're telling that story and then inviting other people to kind of share in that journey and make their own friends. Right, right. Yeah, I think I was thinking of what you said earlier about, you know, we can love people well if we love God well. And one of the things, you know, Scripture says that the only real antidote to fear is love, right? Perfect love drives out all fear. And so if we feel fearful, you know, towards Muslims, um, and it's not like an unreasonable um, fear when it comes to people that do terrible things in the name of Islam, right? Um, right? And many of our fellow Muslim friends, like, they're just as afraid of that as we are. Like, they share in the fear of extremists. Yes. Um, and that's, like, a huge point to realize. But then secondly, um, to really start praying and asking God, I had to do that. I don't think I was, like, super afraid of Muslims, but I just had hesitation, I would say. Um, and kind of like these lingering things in the back of my mind. And I really had to pray and ask God, like, 
fill me with your perfect love so that I can truly love my Muslim friends um, and not, you know, have these hesitations. Mm -hmm. And with that comes stories. I think when people hear, I mean, our story really isn't that remarkable. We just post a lot of pictures of us having great coffee. It's like we were really surprised by the responses we got originally. Like, why is this such a big deal to people? Mm -hmm. You know, we're, you know, not that special. <laughs> um, but I think it's not the norm, I think, what people are seeing. And so um, another way that um, I think what we can do is I started posting a lot of, started being really proactive about posting um, stories on my Facebook wall, whether it's from my own Muslim friends or from things that I ha heard around the world, where in that story, the Muslim was being the Good Samaritan. Mm. So like recently we had Easter, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there were these attacks on churches um, the week before in, in Egypt. Egypt yeah. And so it went around, like we all hear about the persecution of Christians in, in Muslim-majority countries. Um, but then the week later, um, Jordanian Muslim youth went around these um, churches um, on Easter to protect them from mm -hmm. any, you know, crazies coming in and wanting to do harm. And I constantly hear these stories from Muslim-majority countries yeah. where there are wonderful Muslims, um, like even the We Are N movement, like that mm -hmm. Arabic letter N that a lot of people put on their Facebook walls, that was started by Iraqi Muslims mm. who noticed that ISIS was marking these homes with an N, which is the word for, is the N for Nazarene, which is the word for Christians in the Quran. Yeah. They were marking these homes, like here's where Christian lives. And so the Muslim neighbors were like, no way, ISIS. Like, if you're going to do that, then we're going to mark our own homes as well. And they started putting ends on their homes, even though they weren't Christians. Because mm. they said, like, if you're against them, you're also against us. And now we know about the We Are End movement, and we think Christians started it. But that's right. not the case. <laughs> like, this was started by uh, Muslims basically putting their lives on the line, standing with Christians mm. against ISIS. And I think those stories really help us dispel stereotypes. And there's so many of them. You just have to Google them and you'll find it. Yeah, that's so powerful. And and for someone that might have that fear, hearing that is going to make such a bigger impact on them than argu arguments. Right. Exactly. Recently, I was reading a, a book that just came out from a couple friends of mine, hmm. Jamie Goggin and Kyle Strobel. It's a hmm. book called the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb. And the whole idea behind that book is, are we going to embrace a power from below, hmm. like a, a worldly power that comes through influence, might, deception, whatever, or are we gonna embrace a power from above from hmm. that comes from God and that that's displayed in our weakness? Hmm. You know, we we as weak people coming to Jesus and, and um, being empowered by him. One of the things they that they brought up is how stories shape our collective consciousness. Hmm. And so they they used kind of a negative example of how minstrelsy in the United States, which was this practice where white people would put on black makeup hmm. and act like African Americans or what the perceived view of African Americans was mm -hmm. as entertainment, um, it formed a negative opinion of African Americans that mm -hmm. That, that negative opinion actually helped legitimize and enforce slavery. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's kind of scary how, how impactful stories can be negative or positive. And yep. it's like years later, okay, the overt racism might be much less. Right. There's, there's laws, there's civil rights and things like that, but um, it's still part of group consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's systemic forms, these covert forms still flourish. Yep. 
What's, what stories do we tell about Muslims? I think right. the stories that you just said are a great example. Yeah, yeah. one of my um, Muslim friends, she did her, I think, master's thesis on the portrayal of Muslims in movies. And so a similar story, right, where um, she watched every single movie in which there was a Muslim character. And I don't know the percentage, but the overwhelming majority of it was, you know, it would be the enemy or the bad guy mm -hmm. or first seeming to be good, but then actually being bad. You know, there were very, very few good stories of, like, the good Samaritan slash the good Muslim, right, in a movie. Mm -hmm. um, and that does something with, like, if year in, year out, you know, um, for many years now, we are fed this narrative that every single Muslim either is a terrorist or has the potential to become one, or if we allow too many of them in, then one day they're going to take over, you know. It's this narrative that when I started doing this um, research for my PhD um, dissertation, I went back all the way to the start of the United States um, when um, the first people came here from Europe. Mm -hmm. And that narrative was already with them that they've carried on since the crusade times because, you know, in Europe. Wow. And I even yeah. grew up with this in Holland, like mm -hmm. in the history books, we learned about the Moors, which is mm -hmm. actually a derogatory term, you know, for the Muslims that were coming from South Spain. Um, and some of them were, you know, dominating in Holland. So I mixed up all these stories of, you know, pretty much like nothing really good can come from the Middle East or from like the Northern Africa, uh, because this was the European mindset that we had. And this is also the mindset that people brought here. So when we hear stories of something good being done, we think it's the exception. Um, and uh, of course there is, you know, a ton of violence right now, but I think when we really were to put all the stories collectively together, we would find that the extremists are a very, very small percentage. Um, and there's so many more stories of just awesome things that were done um, by, by Muslims. And, you know, it's the same as that kind of overt and subconscious racism. Like, um, I think that, that you could find a lot of parallels when it comes to, they call it Islamophobia or, you know, fear of Muslims or Islam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't really hear the church telling a lot of stories about Muslims in general. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and unfortunately, when I do hear them, they, they might be neutral or slightly negative. Right. Um, because even if, if they're acknowledging that, okay, these are people created in the image of God right. um, that, that we need to love, there's still this sense of like, well, but they have their own religion and that's competition for us. Right. And they're, you know, they're going to edge us out. Our rights are going to be eroded or, right. or whatever. That still kind of feels like just below, simmering just below the surface of, of a lot of the conversations I hear. Yeah. So I think we need to change that. I think there needs mm -hmm. to be some some good stories yep. told. <laughs> yeah, and it's I think it's a very brave thing if pastors do that, because there's a handful that I know of, um, and some even who say, like, we want our church to be known for loving Muslims. Um, and, you know, you lose members as a result because people mm -hmm. don't like that. Um, I know of a, um, a pastor who started sharing some positive stories about Muslims in some of his sermons, and people would literally stand up and walk out, mm. you know? Um, oh, and so I think... Um, it's a very, um, yeah, I, th I think absolutes needs to be done and those type of people when they do that um, are really my heroes. So we need to be telling stories and um, you may think, well, I'm not a storyteller, I can't do that. But um, everyone has a role to play. Mm -hmm. And recently I came across something called New Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. 
by someone named Daniel Hunter. And so he has a website called newjimcroworganizing.org, and I can put the link in the show notes. But he outlines four roles in changing public perception. He's got an advocate, a helper, an organizer, and a rebel. Hmm. So the advocate is maybe that someone that's more like the storyteller that we've been discussing that um, is in maybe a position where they have a little bit of influence over a group and they can and they can change perception. Yep. There's also helpers. Helpers are just people that are really good at service right. that are coming along. You know, if you're having a, a protest, they're they're there saying like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a poster board and markers and bring them and organize and make sure there's water for people. And right. you've got organizers that just are very logistically focused. Mm. Um, he even says that you need rebels. Mm. He thinks that in order for a movement to happen for public opinion to be changed there almost has to be these people on the outskirts they might even be part of like the main movement but that are really angry <laughs> right that are kind of pushing that the, are pushing yeah. things that maybe wake people up that otherwise wouldn't be woken up yeah. um what do you think about that have you yeah absolutely that? i would say the i see a lot of like a lot of my friends are working in kind of um racial reconciliation um areas if you will and i see a lot of parallels when it comes to that um, in Muslim-Christian relations. And it's something not just needed here in the United States, but all over the world, right? We need it in, like, where I come from in, Hol in Holland and um, in other places. And I see kind of the same um, steps, if you will. Um, I have some Muslim and Christian friends who have pretty strong words and, you know, do spoken word and these type of things, you know, uh, kind of other rebels, if you will. And then, um, uh, yeah, I would say I'm, I'm probably maybe in, like, an advocate organizer role. I'm not entirely sure, but... Uh, one of the things, for example, that we do is to make it really low-key for people um, is uh, when it's Christmas, we have Christians hosting a Christmas dinner in their homes for Muslim neighbors. And so we have Christians signing up, they go through a little bit of training, um, and then we assign Muslims to come to their home. And right now we have Ramadan coming up um, mm -hmm. end of May when uh, Muslims um, fast during um, daylight hours and then break the fast at night. And uh, it's a ton of organizing. Like we have maybe like 25 homes oh, wow. um, to 30 homes that say like, okay, we'll host some Christians in our home to come break them, you know, um, break bread with us. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so that's another area where I kind of see, you know, if people wanted to jump in um, and uh, people that help with that and advocate for that. So I definitely think... Um, there's also this term that they call intersectionality, mm -hmm. where, you know, these type of things that we're facing in the United States right now, they touch other areas. Yes. Um, whether it's immigration or race relations or um, different religions or how we think of um, refugees. Um, there's there's overlap in a lot of these ways. Yeah. 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 And for those who don't know, intersectionality mm. um, might be a new term. Um, think of it as if you're a woman— there might be certain disadvantages, but if you're a African-American woman, there's many more disadvantages right. than being, say, an African-American man. Yep. Um, and then if you're an African-American Muslim woman, yes. <laughs> you yeah. have three strikes against you, basically. And that's mm -hmm. something I'm learning as well, because most of the Muslims I've interacted with are from an Arab or Turkish background. Mm. And so I haven't even like considered as much like the African-American Muslim woman's story. Mm -hmm. And that's a field where I'm like, wow, I need to learn a lot because there's a whole layer added to what they're facing um, being in the United States. Yeah, each, each layer adds another set of challenges. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so, what do you think? 
the role of the individual is and what do you think the role of the church is and hmm. how can we what are some steps people can start taking do you mm -hmm. think? yeah wow that's a good question um i think Definitely don't wait for your church to do something. If you're at a church where there isn't a much openness for these type of issues, um, there's a ton of places where you can get involved. But I do think like even starting a Bible study around some of these things, like we study, mm -hmm. you know, the Good Samaritan now. Um, I'm sure like there's studies that you can do um, on what does the Bible have to say about interacting with people of different faiths and mm -hmm. different um, ethnic backgrounds. Uh, what is like filling up your mind with scripture and like this, you know, we haven't seen it through this lens yet. Yeah. And hopefully we have more and more pastors doing that as well and teaching this from the pulpit. Because mm -hmm. I do really think it helps um, if it comes also from, especially the senior pastor. I've seen so many people try to get something started at their church and eventually it was an elder or a big donor or the senior pastor themselves or an executive pastor, not all that excited about it and the whole thing would fall apart. Um, so start where you can, mm -hmm. um, especially if there's, you know, pastors listening. Um, I think there's a lot of other pastors they can, can look to for inspiration. Um, and whatever it is that God's telling them to, to do about these things, I think there's a lot of, there's so much to be done. <laughs> I don't even, I mean, it's hard yeah. to even answer, like, where do you begin? Um, but I, I think it starts if, you know, for myself as a, as a white person, even though I'm an immigrant, um, it starts with learning. You know, there's so much that I don't know. Um, and like start with reading some books and talking with people and start small. That's great. Yeah. It goes back to what you said earlier about humility and listening. Right. And just, we're, we're supposed to live without agenda, right? So yeah. we're not making friends to win them over to Jesus or anything like that. We're right. just loving people because we're supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I was just thinking too, like what is so awesome is that for you, you know, you're white, you're a Christian, mm -hmm. you're an American, for you to make these topics available is incredible. Um, you know, I think that that's um, a huge step. So even people listening to your podcast, they can share the podcast with other people like, hey, let's listen to this um, and let's have a conversation around these issues and what Jeremy's talking about. Yeah. Um, sorry, plugging your own Thanks, podcast. Thanks, please do. But <laughs> share this podcast, people. Share it with people. <laughs> talk about it. Do listening parties and then talking about it. Um, yeah, we just have to keep the conversation going and exploring. Yeah. So we, and okay, we may be treading Light, we have probably tread lightly here. We might be getting sure. into deep water. Yeah. Considering we're both white, but yeah. <laughs> um, what do you do? What do you think people can do if they if they're the, actually the focus of racism? We've mm. been talking about it from right. one side. Like, yes. How can we love people that are ma are marginalized? But yeah. What about what do we have to say to the marginalized people? I can speak maybe from um, coming at this like as an immigrant, right? So I guess like in that respect, I have some minority. Feelings, mm -hmm. and it's different from being Muslim or being African American. Um, I never get asked where am I from unless people hear that I have an accent. Mm -hmm. But I've been here 12 years now, and I'm still waiting on a green card. Um, it's been a very difficult road. It's very convoluted. Um, and I think one time I was sharing with an American citizen friend the struggles I was facing as a as an immigrant, and she said, "Well, let me call my congressman." Um, and like hmm. tell about this, that this is not normal and what can I do and what can I learn? Like really willing to hear my story instead of like, well, at least you're doing it the legal way and you're not illegal, you know, hmm. which is what I get a lot as a response, which is like so unhelpful, Thank you know, you <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, 
It's not recognizing that our immigration system is very broken. It's very slow. It's it's very difficult. And it's not as clear-cut as people think that it may be. Um, and so I think from that respect, uh, really hearing, really listening, um, and then really seeing what you can can do, um, mm-hmm. I think what people would want to hear the most. Yeah. Yeah. And and one thing I think of, too, I think of, of Jesus as kind of the prime example of nonviolent resistance. Mm. And so I think that anyone that's that's on the short end of segregation, racism, any kind of negativity probably needs to pursue that path. Yep. Um, yeah. One one thing that Martin Luther King said is that when you when you have nonviolent resistance, you're not only resisting evil people, but you're resisting evil itself. Mm. It's like it somehow points the magnifying glass or the spotlight back on like the real issue, like the systemic issue. Right. Um, whereas if you're resisting violently, sometimes that can just possibly enforce the fear. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It has often a reverse effect. I think it was 2012, a couple years ago. Um, I It was the day before Martin Luther King Day when I kind of started researching a little bit more about him. Because I learned stuff in high school back in Holland, but it was very, very basic. Mm-hmm. And I came across one of his quotes where he said, it's not so much about what evil people are doing, what good people are not doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's worse when your good friend um, doesn't stand up for you than that you're facing um, violence from people that intend to do harm. And so the next day, I was at this um, kind of gathering, if you will, um, and the topic was what the West should know about Islam. Mm -hmm. And so I went thinking like, oh, I'm going to learn something here. Um, But instead, it was this woman who was just sharing one terrible thing after another um, and blaming it on all Muslims everywhere and then the whole religion, you know, all of this. And um, people were really like getting a lot of fear and anger. Um, as a result, and so I was like thinking, like, wow, what am I not doing mm-hmm. right now that I should be doing? And so afterwards, I'm not like the rebel type, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I like to avoid conflict as much as possible, but I felt like I needed to ask for the microphone when I went around afterwards. And I said, you know, I want to speak especially to any Christians that are here today that we are supposed to love. And I hope you don't walk away from this meeting today with more fear, but with more love um, in, in your heart. And I just want to say that I deeply, deeply love my Muslim friends. And that's all really that I said, but I got booed. People were like gasping, like, what? You know, the lady right after me said that I was naive How and dumb. And, <laughs> um, and so I couldn't wait to get out of that meeting. Oh, yeah. So as soon as it was done, I was like storming for the door. And I was stopped by an older Japanese guy and an older African-American mm. guy. And they said to me, thank you so much for what you said. We wish there were more people like you when we were facing this kind of monolithic anger and, and frustration and fear from people. Mm-hmm. And so it's we won't always be in these moments, but we can be that in our own families, you know, when we have a racist uncle or whatever, you know, where it's like speaking kind of love to the fear that we hear around us. And I think all of us know someone um, in our families or in our friendship circles that um, uh, prefers to think the worst of all these different minority groups that we're talking about um, that we can speak to. So, and that's being a good person in the face of um, anger. 
Yeah, and that's that's a form of, of loving our neighbors as well, right? Right. Um, when is, they're not present, what do we say, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and then also being ex- exposing yourself to personal harm or at least some kind of discomfort in knowing yep. that like, no, I need to, I need to stand up and telling, telling this person that they're wrong is actually loving them as well. Right. Because they're yes. being held captive to yeah. ideas that aren't true. Oh my goodness. That is the hardest part of all of mm-hmm. this is that at some point I was over my fear and hesitations of Muslims. I had no problem loving them. Mm-hmm. I love these people to death. They have the best food. You know, it's not that hard, right? They're wonderful people. But then I started getting all this pushback from the my Christian community mm-hmm. um, and calling me naive and stupid and, um, you know, all kinds of names. And I realized I need to learn to love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ mm-hmm. who are speaking out of fear. Um, and so the number one thing after I went away from that one meeting is like I immediately called up like people that I trust. It's like, pray for me because I don't want any bitterness mm-hmm. in my heart to grow towards what I just experienced and towards these people that you know, can't see it uh, because we can turn then and like we do, you know, and that's like mm-hmm. not um, promoting us. We need a lot of patience and a lot of love. Like the only way to get people out of their fears, even if they're from our own faith, um, is to kind of love them to love them out of it. <laughs> and that yeah. I think is so hard, you know, when it's within your own family, within your own church, your family, your, your, your friends. Um, to stay patient, to stay loving, to stay kind, you know. Wait, it, so it doesn't happen in like one conversation and then it's all fixed? <laughs> no, unfortunately <laughs> not. With some people it does, but we have um, young Christians. This really breaks my heart. We have young Christians in our um, Two-Face, One Friendship movement whose parents um, are fiercely opposed to them even talking to Muslims. Mm. And some of them are elders in churches. Um, some of them are um, have joined militia groups, oh, wow. even um, even here in California, and they are really struggling because their own parents are not with them, wanting to live out the teachings of Jesus. Um, and um, even though their family, you know, their parents are um, Christians, so that we've basically started a support group almost yeah. for Christian kids whose parents. Um, and these are, you know, teenagers and um, young adults. So it's it's not easy. It's not like, oh, yeah, let's do this warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very difficult. But I think that's what grows your character. It's what grows your walk with Christ. Um, it what makes you dig deeper into Scripture, searching for answers. Um, and so your own faith mm-hmm. and character grows tremendously as a, as a result. Yeah, it's, it's a hard place to occupy, but it's mm-hmm. the place that Jesus is calling us to to occupy exactly like all of a yeah. sudden all of these verses come to life they like oh yeah. love your enemies like oh, i don't have any and like oh <laughs> <laughs> you know it's uh yeah it's definitely it's it's definitely a, a good journey and i think um as much as it's hard the joy and the fulfillment that come out of it um i think it's it's indescribable mm. um and, and so so worth any kind of issues that you might face along the way yeah yeah, that's the the spot where you can really be kind of a a conduit or a representative or ambassador, what do you want to, whatever you want to call it, of of God's love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And watch him work through you. Yeah. Yeah. And then like being forced to go back to God again, where it's like, God, I don't feel a whole lot of love right now. You need to fill me up and I need to empty myself of myself um, and any kind of, you know, sin that I have. 
um, or, you know, bitterness or anger that like has been latching onto my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're like driven constantly back to the source of love um, to let that fill you up and let that overflow to other people. Yeah. And that's so cool that at the same time that you're kind of trying to love people into a better relationship with Christ, it's causing your relationship to go deeper. And- Absolutely. Yeah. Shaving off your rough edges at the same time. Yes, it goes both ways, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So how can people contact you, Mikal, or hmm. start to get involved in, in what you're already doing? Yeah, definitely. Um, so our website, it's going to change, but um, it will stay a link. Right now, it's www.miss, with two S's, understanding.co. Um, and then my email address would be info at misunderstanding.co. So if people are saying like, hey, I'm ready to start a journey, maybe you're not ready to meet a Muslim right away because you are um, nervous about it, but want to read something. Or if you're saying like, no, you know what? I want to um, take that jump and I want to meet a Muslim. One of the biggest pieces of advice I can give is that fear is like a big wall drawn on a tissue paper. <laughs> it seems very scary and like no way around it. But if you get closer to it and you just dare to poke it, you'll find it's just a tissue paper. It just falls down. Um, and every single person that I've introduced to a Muslim was like, wow, if only I had done this earlier. Mm. Um, and it's been so helpful for them. So um, yeah, we, we in um, our, our initiative definitely want to be help when it comes to that. So even if you're not local, we may know someone somewhere else. So just contact us. That's great. And we can put that in the show notes. But the point is basically there's a step that everyone can take. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's cool to hear you talk about fear like that and the fact that people wish that they would have done this earlier because mm-hmm. this isn't like a loving people that aren't like us isn't a burden. Right. <laughs> there's there's a it, it actually benefits us too and there's a lot of life there that we're just missing out on. Yeah, huge. Yeah. There's so much joy, so much love like right around the corner. Um it's it's extremely exciting. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Next time on the podcast, I'm going to tell some stories. I've been investigating the effects our words have on others, and I'm trying to find a framework to understand the responsibility I have for what I say. This is a deeply personal topic I've been wrestling with, but fortunately, Jesus has a lot to say about it. I'd like to thank Jojo Too Cool for the review on iTunes. And if you haven't reviewed on iTunes yet, please take a few minutes and review this podcast yourself so that others can find it. The more reviews you leave, even if they're bad reviews, the more people will find this podcast. And as always, if you've got comments or questions, you can leave them through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes along with the credits to today's music. See you next time.